you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Would you pray with me? It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And yet, Lord, this passage feels hard to hear. Open our hearts and our minds to hear afresh from you today. Uh, as you have revealed yourself in the word and as you reveal yourself through your spirit to us. We love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are actively recruiting for discipleship intensive right now. If you've been on uh, morning prayers or any of our Bible studies, if you've talked to me about anything spiritual happening in your life lately, you've probably heard me say, you should sign up for discipleship intensive This is a multi-year intensive uh, discipleship process where we take you uh, through reflection on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be one who uh, is called by God. We take a semester to look at the biblical narrative, a semester to talk about theology, what do we actually believe about God, and then uh, a semester to unpack uh, what it means to live out all that uh, in our discipleship. Uh, primarily, I take the second semester, biblical narrative. This is what I went to school for. This is my jam. I like walking people from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, helping people get the big picture of Scripture and see how we fit into that. I uh, teach inductive Bible study during that semester and help us come uh, not with a set of presuppositions to the text, uh, but to come with an open mind to see what the text would say to us. But a couple times, they've gone rogue and let me take semester three, which is theology. This feels like the wild west of church work for me, because this is where you dive into the minutia that absolutely matters. This is where you can uh, get into this little tiny word and say, this changes everything about our very existence. Maybe the most discussed thing in theology, and one of the things we discuss in semester three, is how is Jesus fully God and fully human. Wolfhart Pennenberg wrote a book called Jesus, God and Man. It's 432 pages of trying to explain Jesus as God and man. The creeds were born out of this idea of trying to explain how Jesus is God and man. How can you be fully 100% Human and 100% divine. That math doesn't add up, does it, Gabe? 100% plus 100% can't equal 100%. But yet it does. We wrestle with what it means for him uh, to be born human, to be begotten divine, to uh, have this very substance united together and indivisible. What does it mean? And the other chapter we talk about that same week is Jesus's kenosis. It's always, uh, you can tell somebody who uh, thinks big about their seminary time when they talk about kenosis. Uh, they're throwing around the Scrabble word when what they need to say is, uh, did Jesus act like God? Did Jesus use his divine privilege? 
I think we would all say for sure that Jesus stays fully God, right? Could he zap people with his God wand at any point if he wanted to? Could he? That's a good, good response, Gabe. I think is uh, maybe appropriate. Philippians 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly honored him and gave him the name above all names so that the name of Jesus everyone in heaven on earth and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He emptied himself. Some people would say he let go of the divine prerogative. He set aside uh, some of the powers and privileges of being fully God in order to be fully human that while at his essence he didn't change, he emptied himself of some of his divinity or at least some of the privileges with his divinity. We hear this when people are starting to ask about when will you return, Jesus? When will it happen? He says, I don't know. I don't know the hour or day. Only the Father in heaven knows. We think about this when we think about things like him being tempted by the devil. Is it uh, Jesus in his divinity withstanding this temptation or is it Jesus in his full humanity? We think about it when we say that Jesus died as a spotless lamb, sin-free. If he did this because of his divinity, then that's great. Yeah, God died for God's self. But if he did this in his humanity, then he is that perfect sacrifice, that one who uh, was born of humanity and yet lived a sinless life. We need Jesus to have been fully capable of sinning for his sinlessness to matter. Hear that. He needed to have been able to sin for his sinlessness to matter. If Jesus couldn't have sinned, if because he is God, there's zero chance he would have sinned, then it doesn't matter. It's all shadow games, right? Then why any of this? So Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't. A few years back, Rachel Held Evans uh, did a tweet that was particularly controversial. Uh, Rachel died about a year ago from the flu in her mid-30s. She's a a Christian author and blogger, a huge social media following, and she tweeted something very controversial. She said, Jesus had to repent of the racism he grew up with. Oh, It lit Twitter on fire. Jesus has to repent of his racism? People attacked her left and right. Uh, Ultimately, she clarified the tweet should have been a much longer treatment to something in effect of Jesus had to transcend the culture he grew up in. That Jesus, as fully human, had to, had to move beyond what some of the humans around him raised him in. I think she was talking about this passage, this 
really uncomfortable passage, this passage that it's hard for Carrie to say, the word of God for the people of God, and us all to say, thanks be to God. This passage that when you find out you're preaching it, you think, oh, could we get the minor prophets back? This passage where Janelle has to pick out songs and like, oh, what do we do with this? This passage that frankly, most of us wish wasn't in the Bible, right? It had been, if in the final editing process, this had just gotten cut out and kind of brushed aside, it'd make a much easier transition from the middle of 15 to 16. But it's here, this uncomfortable, hard passage that we have to deal with. This passage that seems in many ways to build on this this crashing in of Jesus' humanity and his divinity, this reconciling of the mission that God has put on him in this incarnation with his experience as being a mid-30s Jew. It's here, and we have to talk about it. It... uh, It comes late in chapter 15. I think it's helpful to draw on the broader context of the whole chapter. So hang with me for about 20 verses. The Pharisees and legal experts came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So there in Jerusalem, he's up by uh, Lake Lake, uh, Galilee. Galilee and Sea. Sea of Galilee. They come up to him from Jerusalem and they said, Why do your disciples break the elders' rules handed down to us? They don't ritually purify their hands by washing before they eat. Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God by keeping the rules handed down to you? For God said, honor your father and mother, and the person who speaks against father and mother will certainly be put to death. But you say, if you tell your father and mother, everything I'm expected to contribute to you, I'm giving to God as a gift, then you don't have to honor your father. So you do away with God's law for the sake of the rules that have been handed down to you. Hypocrites, Isaiah really knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is empty since they teach instructions that are human rules. Jesus called the crowd near and said to them, listen, understand, it's not what goes into your mouth that contaminates a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of the mouth that contaminates the person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you just said? As if Jesus didn't know that the Pharisees were offended by what he just said. Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be pulled up. Leave the Pharisees alone. They are blind people who, guides to, uh, who are guides to blind people. But if a blind person leads another blind person, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter spoke up and said, explain this riddle to us. Jesus said, don't you understand yet? Don't you know that everything that goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer, but what goes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And that's what contaminates a person in God's sight. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual sins, thefts, false testimonies, and insults. These contaminate a person in God's sight, but eating without washing hands doesn't contaminate in God's sight. Pause. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. This is uh, up north of the Sea of Galilee. This is just outside of Judah proper. This is uh, a foreign nation. These are people who uh, are um, not Israelites. Tyre is where uh, Solomon and David actually conscripted the labor to come and help build the temple in uh, David's house. Uh, Tyre is where Jezebel, the king of Ahaz, comes from. Tyre is not... 
where God's mission is happening. But Jesus withdraws to Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came to him. A Canaanite woman. This is this Old Testament language, right? A Canaanite, somebody from the nations that are outside of Israel who are in this land that we want. A Canaanite woman here, in Mark's gospel, she's called the Syrio-Phoenician woman. This context would mean something to any of you who've been doing Epic of Eden should hear this as a trigger of, oh, the Syrio-Phoenician people or the people of Aram or Damascus right to the north of Israel, the people who uh, together with the northern kingdom united together and tried to actually send Judah Uh, Judah's king out of power. The Syrio-Phoenician people were the the enemies of Judah. These are the people who uh, ultimately lead to the northern kingdom's fall to Assyria. She is as Gentile as Gentile gets. This is not a Samaritan woman. This is a Syrio-Phoenician woman. This is a woman whose very ethnicity brings back generational pain. Jesus has left Israel. He's left Judah, the place of God's work right now, and gone to Tyre and Sidon. And this Syrio-Phoenician Canaanite woman comes from those territories and shouts, show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. This foreign woman in this foreign land comes to Jesus and says, have mercy on me, son of David. This is coded language. This is, I know that you are the Messiah of Israel's hope, the one that they've been expecting. She knows he's the son of David, but just a few minutes before, the Pharisees have been angry at him because his people are not washing their hands before dinner. The Pharisees, who should absolutely have a sense of who has come to redeem God's people, who's come to enact God's rescue plan, miss it completely. In fact, Jesus makes them mad. And this Gentile of Gentiles, this uh, foreigner with baggage, this person in a distant land identifies him rightly as son of David. She begs for mercy. Her daughter is suffering from demon possession. But he didn't respond at all. I've been trying all week to use holy imagination and to picture this scene How fast does this play out? Is this fast paced and immediately she responds again? Or do we sit in this pregnant pause of uncomfortable silence? He didn't respond at all. Then his disciples came and urged him, send her away. She keeps shouting after us. They're outside of Israel encountering this foreign woman and they have been made very uncomfortable. Jesus has not responded and she is shouting and begging and they just want it to stop. I, I probably resonate most with the disciples in this passage, this, this sense of, oh, this is, this is too uncomfortable for us to bear. Can we just, okay, if we're not doing something, let's just let's, let's send her away. 
Because we don't like uncomfortable. And this is uncomfortable. But Jesus replies, I have been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. If you've read your Gospels, you know this to be the case, that Jesus regularly says his mission is to Israel and that ultimately the rest of the world will be blessed through Israel, that they will, um, the, the message of, of the kingdom will be uh, broader than Israel later. But, but for now, he's here for Israel. This is a message that's hard to hear in its general statements, right? I've come for Israel. But when it gets particular... When it gets to this woman who is begging for her daughter to be set free from demon possession, hear the sting. I've only been sent to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. This Foreigner of foreigners, this woman with this ethnic baggage that's going to cause these problems in this land that's not Judah, where Jesus is out away from really where he would think he would be, kneels and now calls the son of David Lord. The Pharisees wanted to do away with him, and this woman who should seemingly have no sense of who he is declares that not only is he son of David, but he is Lord. Help me. If we've been uncomfortable to this point, we get even more uncomfortable because he replies, it's not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I've read every commentary I own on this passage this week trying to find a way to tenderize this and make this more palatable and a better metaphor, but it's just hard. It's one of those things that eventually I want to say, like, Jesus, was there a tamer way to say this? The metaphor he uses is take the food from the children and toss it to the dogs. But she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. The humility in this moment to empty yourself of any pride and not just run away in, in this moment, but to say, okay, even if Israel are the children and I am the dog, what about the crumbs? A crumb is enough for me. I don't need the whole meal. Give me the crumbs, Lord. And Jesus answers, woman, you have great faith. It'll be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. Uh, the commentators agree across the board. This isn't some divine test of this woman's faith. Jesus doesn't uh, stay silent or uh, use this parable of the dogs, this metaphor of the dogs, in order uh, to test her. That's, that'd be a cruel situation. This is a crashing in of Israel's history, of Jesus' humanity, of the mission that God is doing through Jesus' divinity, all in one spot. Jesus has flipped the script for the Pharisees just a minute ago when he says, the laws as you're setting them up don't matter. The laws that you've made about who can eat what, when, where, and how 
are not what makes you right in God's sight. It's what comes out of your mouth, born out of your heart. These leaders of of Israel who should know. Jesus flips the entire story for them. And then he goes out to a place that is not Israel. In Luke's gospel, whenever Jesus moves geographically, uh, your ear should hear, he moved, something is getting ready to happen. Here, something happens. He goes out of Israel's territory, encounters a woman who is not part of Israel's uh, family, and has to confront both what he knows as human. The Syrophoenicians are problematic They are not part of us. He has to confront what he knows in his divinity, that God has sent him to Israel. God has sent him to this particular people in time, and yet in this moment, he has to respond. God regularly responds to the, the uh, actions on the street Maybe nowhere more clearly than back in the Moses story when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law and the people begin to build the golden calf and God is like, look, look at what they're doing. We should just wipe them out. And Moses says, have mercy on them. Have mercy. And Yahweh says, okay, here's what we'll do. We talked about that passage in Discipleship Intensive and Todd Nelson said, uh, here we can see God evolving. And I was like, oh, God evolving. That language is stark. Because God's character is always the same. But I think what we could say is that we see God's plan evolving clearly. God regularly reacting to what the situation is on the ground and changing his plans in a way that his rescue plan might be enacted amongst the world. We see it with Israel primarily in the Old Testament and then we already get glimpses in the Gospels of how it's going to be throughout the whole lands. We see Jesus with a Samaritan woman. We see Jesus with the Roman centurion. And in this most uncomfortable of passages, we see Jesus offer healing to this woman's daughter, this woman who uh, by all Israel rights could have been sent away. We begin to get glimpses of how the kingdom is breaking in, not just for the children of Abraham, but for the whole of humanity. This gives us a glimmer of what is going to come in the Great Commission when Jesus sends us to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth, to all nations. It's going to give us a glimmer of what's going to happen in Pentecost. And yet it's rooted right in this geographical, cultural bound, uncomfortable moment. I'm glad this passage wasn't cut out of Scripture. As hard as it is to come to it to preach. I need a God who regularly adapts to us. I need a God who looks at what we have done and regularly figures out how to continue his rescue plan for the whole of the cosmos. We need a God who has said that he is covenant faithful that he is going to keep the terms regardless of what we do. Because regularly, the problems of our humanity crashes in 
to the realities of the divine. The church is not yet perfectly holy. New creation has not yet come in. And we have all kinds of ways in which we mess up. Ways in which God would be completely within his rights to say, go away. Many days, those in the heavenly realms could look down and say, just send them away, Jesus. For I and we so often fail at being covenant faithful. But praise be to God that we serve a Lord who took on flesh, who experienced the fullness of humanity with all the cultural baggage that comes with, who flipped the script as to what it means to be holy, not based on rules and regulations, but on a faith that would humble themselves even to the knees of our Lord and Savior. To faith that would that would endure even humiliation. We need to be thankful that our God is evolving in how he reacts with his story. Our God's character remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he absolutely reacts to what we do. You don't have to look far in the world to see that that is a very good thing these days. May we be in tune with how God is uh, responding. May we be in tune with what God is calling us to. And may we be in tune with what it means to be his people these days. Would you pray with me? God of holy love. From the moment humanity first sinned, you showed that you were going to stick with us. Instead of ending the human experiment right there, you made clothes for those first people and gave them dignity to their shame. When Israel uh, leaned into idolatry, you listened. And you forgave. When Israel worshipped other gods and trampled upon each other, you sent them into exile, but yet you went with them. And you preserved them and brought them back. When humanity had in many ways forsaken you, you took on flesh. As a first century Galilean Jew. You emptied yourself of your divine prerogative, lived and taught and showed us what it meant to be God's people. You humbled yourself even to death on a cross and in your resurrection you're exalted as Lord. In your ascension you reign over a kingdom that still gets it wrong. In Pentecost you poured out your spirit that we might be assured of your presence. And yet even when we flee from you, you continue to pursue us. Lord, thank you for never giving up on us. 
Thanking, thank you for adapting and for evolving your plan. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.